We are continuing today in our series on distinctives of a gospel-shaped church in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Our focus is verse 11 and verse 12. Uh, so if you'll make your way there, I'll read the passage here in just a few moments. The message is entitled, Fight the Good Fight. The wording that comes here from the scripture and the wording, fight the good fight, that Paul uses in both 1st and 2nd Timothy literally means to engage in conflict. Uh, the words were used in the context of athletic games or engaging in military conflict. It's a reminder to all of us that the Christian life is a struggle against evil within ourselves. Then it's a struggle against the world and it's also a struggle against the devil. Ultimately, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And we are to fight the good fight individually and then collectively as the people of God, as the church. To do that, we need to follow the truth of the word, uh, be filled with and following after the power of the spirit, and to be together in pursuing the things of God and advancing the kingdom of God. In his book, The Good Fight, Mark Buchanan points to the importance of spiritual discipline and unity in the fight of faith. And to do so, he points to the movie Gladiator. The premise of the movie is when General Maximus comes to Rome dirty and shackled. That's not the way that it's supposed to be. Where was Rome's legendary pageantry to greet one of her war heroes? Where was the heraldry and the burnished armor and the laurel crown? Where was the honor that was due this man? You see, Maximus comes as a slave. Through a maze of events, he goes from a celebrated warrior, favorite of one emperor, to a despised traitor, the nemesis of another. He becomes a fugitive and then a caged slave and then an unvanquished gladiator. His growing fame in the arena brings him to the sports pinnacle. He finds himself in Rome's magnificent Colosseum to face her elite warriors. The games open with a reenactment of the Battle of Carthage. The gladiators, all foot soldiers, are cast as the hapless Carthaginians. It is the stage for slaughter. They are marched out of a dark passageway into brilliant sunlight, and they are met with a roar of bloodlust. Maximus, their leader, shouts to his men, stay together. He assembles them in a tight circle in the center of the arena, back to back, shields aloft, spears outward. And again, he shouts, whatever comes out of that gate, stay together. What comes out of that gate is swift and sleek and full of terror. Chariot upon chariot thunders forth. War horses pull with deadly agility and earthquaking strength. Wagons drive uh, by with their master charioteers. Amazonian warrior princesses ride behind and with deadly precision hurl spears and volley arrows. One gladiator strays from the circle, ignoring Maximus's order, and he's cut down. Maximus shouts once more, 
stay together. The instinct to scatter is strong, but Maximus exerts his authority and they resist that impulse. And as the scene progresses, the chariots circle closer and closer and closer and closer. Spears and arrows rain down on the men's wooden shields. The chariots are about to cinch the knot, and right then Maximus shouts, Now! The gladiators attack and decimate the Romans. And Commodus, the evil emperor, caustically remarks to the game's organizer, My memory of Roman history is rusty, but didn't we beat Carthage the first time? The message to these men was whatever comes out of that gate, stay together. And it's a message that is helpful to us as the church and timely for us as the people of God in the spiritual battle that we find ourselves in in this world. No matter what comes out of the gate, we are to stay together. And in that, focus is needed to know how to fight the good fight. What do these words mean that we'll read here in just a moment? Unity is needed in the church to fight the good fight together, to be headed in the same direction in the kingdom of God and advancing the things of God and proclaiming the gospel of God and lifting up Jesus. And there's so many things that can distract us and discourage us. But through it all, we are to fight the good fight of the faith. So I begin reading in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I'll read these two verses. But you, man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In this final section of First Timothy, Paul tells Timothy how to fight the good fight. Timothy was not in an easy situation. His situation was not easy because he had to confront false teachers that had arisen among the Ephesian church. Timothy needed to confront their errors and to teach truth. Some people in the church had been led astray by these people who were trying to Uh, confuse them and teach them things that were inconsistent with the scripture. So Paul is saying to Timothy, this is how you do it. This is where your focus has to be. This is how you fight the good fight and you stand firm in the things of God. First off, to fight the good fight requires fleeing from certain things. He says, but you, man of God, This title, man of God, is used in the Old Testament to refer to men like Moses and Samuel and Elijah and David and some of the prophets. He's describing a person who belongs completely to God and follows God in every area of his life. This is a person who lives in the presence of God. And because he's living in the presence of God, the priorities of God are his priorities. The pursuit of God is his pursuit. And Timothy was to teach truth, and in teaching truth, confront error. This was the role that Paul was reminding him of as the man of God at the church at Ephesus. Now, in 1 Kings 13, uh, there's an example of a man of God who the Bible says came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel to confront evil King Jeroboam. 
And when the truth is proclaimed, what we know is that error will be exposed. And that's not always popular. That was certainly the case in those examples in the Old Testament of people who would teach the truth to confront error and then have to deal with it. A man of God is not concerned with being popular because he's more concerned with being faithful and he's concerned with being right. He's concerned with being consistent with the scripture. He cares about the truth. I think about another example from the life of uh, Eli and his priesthood. There came a man of God to Eli and told him that his priesthood was about to be removed in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And the man of God had good reason to confront Eli because he was a representative of God before the people. Eli's sons were profaning the temple. And a man of God was put in the position where he had to be willing to speak up when other people wanted to be silent. He had to be willing to stand for the truth when other people were going their own way. And he instructs him here as the man of God to flee from these things. Now, what's this idea of fleeing from something? It's running from it. It's the idea of fleeing from things that are unhelpful and unholy and unbiblical. And Paul uses this imagery several times in 1 Timothy. He tells him to flee from false teaching that marginalized Christ in his teaching. To flee from petty controversies and quarrels about words. He told him to flee from divisive talk. And to flee from religious delusion that would see uh, godliness as a means of financial gain. But I want us to think just for a moment about some categories that would encompass all of these and even more as we think about our need to flee from certain things in order to fight the good fight. We are to flee from the wrong motivations. These things here points to the false teachers. These were the people who were chasing after the love of money. The love of money is a motive or it's a motivation for how some people lived in error. And I'm captured by the idea that the Bible has a lot to say about our motives. God cares about our motives. God does not just care about our actions. God cares about our motives. He cares about what it is that compels us to do what we do. And the reason that motives are so important is because they're the underlying reason for our actions. What we believe is going to influence how we are motivated and what we are motivated by and how we are motivated is going to impact our actions. And if we're not careful, we can deceive even ourselves. Proverbs 16 and verse 2 says, all a person's ways seem right to him but it's the Lord who weighs the motives. Sinful motives arise from the flesh, whether they be pride or desire for approval or the desire to gain something selfishly. All of these things can be negative reasons for our actions. And there's only one compelling motive that should align all of our other motives and guide our lives in every other way. And that one compelling motive in our life should be to please God in all things. No matter what we do, we want to live for the glory of God. As Paul wrote to the church at Colossae in Colossians 3 and verse 23, he said, Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, not for men. So sometimes we get ourselves in trouble when we aren't 
fleeing from the wrong motivations and we're more concerned about what we're going to get out of something or what somebody's going to think about us or what we're going to gain in the end. And we are to focus on doing what we do for God. I think we also need to flee from the wrong people. Second Timothy 3, Paul writes this, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And then Paul makes one statement at the end of that category of sin. Avoid such people. That's what he says. After noting the characteristics of these people, he says, Timothy, you've got to watch out for them. You've got to avoid them. Those who act like this are deceived. I think about a comparison that's made of such people uh, as uh, Janus and Jambres rebelling against Moses in the Old Testament. And this thought crossed my mind as I was thinking about this message. If we fail to avoid such divisive people, then we are such people. Romans 16 and verse 17 says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So Paul shows concern for false teachers and divisive believers. This is not a one-time shot that he comes up with here in this passage. He talks about it over and over again. So we flee the wrong motivations, we flee the wrong people, and then we flee from ungodliness. Titus 2 and verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. Listen to what verse 13 says. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here's what he's saying to us. The grace of God ought to compel you to turn away from worldly behaviors. And the original language uses two words with similar meanings. One is translated as ungodliness or godlessness. The other is translated as worldly passions or worldly lust. And ungodliness is anything that contradicts God's will or his nature. So what it says to us, we then are to live with self-control, with morality, and with godliness. So to fight the good fight requires fleeing certain things. And then second, to fight the good fight requires running toward certain things. Notice what he says now in the verses that we just read. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. We are not just to flee from certain things, but also run toward certain things. The word that is translated as Pursue is sometimes actually translated as persecute. And it's the idea of going after something with effort and with determination. 
you cannot be disengaged as a disciple and these things become a reality in your life. There is no such thing as neutral in the Christian life. It's not as though, oh, I'm going to run away from the things that are bad, but now I'm just going to sit here in neutral. I'm going to be dead in the water. What's going to happen when you're dead in the water is you're going to be drifting toward the rocks on the shore. That's what's going to happen. You have to have the motor engaged. And you have to be fleeing from certain things, but now you are fleeing toward certain things. Running toward the things that God wants to be true in your life. And he says, pursue righteousness. Now we know that our righteous standing before God as a Christian is our justification. So you are redeemed, forgiven, saved by the blood of Jesus period. It is the finished work of Christ. You are declared righteous in him. But then because you've been declared righteous in him, you're to pursue the righteous character of God. So because of your justification, you're now going to pursue your sanctification. Because of what God has done in saving you and declaring you righteous, he's now set you apart and you're going to pursue likeness of Jesus. So that means for the Christian, your heart is going to be that you want to be more like Jesus. You want your life to be conformed to the image of Jesus. You want to be more and more like him. And you're going to pursue righteousness to do that. And John said the one who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as God is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil. And this is not sinless perfection in this life. That is not what the Bible teaches. But I'll tell you what the Bible teaches. It teaches growth in righteousness. It teaches the fact that we are to be progressing day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, decade by decade, toward a greater likeness of Jesus. And then he says, pursue godliness. This is closely related to righteousness, and it has to do with a uh, reverence or awe of God in his presence. And I think a godly person is going to live with a holy reverence of the presence of God in their lives and in turn fear God and flee from sin. Back in chapter 4 and verse 7 and 8, Paul talks about disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness. So it doesn't just happen. We have to discipline ourselves to it. And then as we pursue righteousness and godliness, we're also pursuing faith. I think in part this means faithfulness, which is a fruit of the Spirit, but it also means trusting in God for every situation of life. So I just want to encourage you today, maybe you're struggling with some situation and you might be dealing with a little bit of doubt or self-doubt or even doubt of God, and the enemy's wanting to turn your eyes away from God and get your eyes squarely on the problem so that's all you can think about, and that's what's got you wrapped up, and you're getting weaker by the day. And the Spirit of God is saying to you, you pursue faith, you keep on believing, you keep your eyes on Jesus, he has good in mind for you because you are his child, and as you do that with faith, you can please God. I'm so encouraged by some of you in this church that have gone through difficult things even in recent days, and you didn't know what the outcome was going to necessarily be, you didn't know exactly what that struggle was going to be like, but in the midst of it all, you kept believing, and your faith held strong. Even if you didn't feel like it, God continued to build that faith in you. And it's a strong message to all of us of the importance 
of faith and pleasing God. Then he says, pursue love. The reason the Bible commands us to love one another is because it requires diligent effort. All of us have a tendency to be self-focused. We're concerned about me, I, mine, all those things that capture us. And love says we're going to focus on God and what he desires and on others and loving others. And then we're to pursue endurance or perseverance. This is steadfastness bearing up under difficult circumstances. And the best way to pursue perseverance or endurance is to hope in the promise of being with God eternally, anticipating his presence. You know, there's so many people in the Christian life that when it gets a little bit dark or it gets a little bit challenging, they begin to feel the struggle. The easiest thing to do is just quit or back away or disengage from it. And the scripture's telling us here, we are to endure, pursue endurance. Now, God keeps us in this, but I want you to understand that he is saying to all of us, as well as Timothy, you've got to keep on keeping on. And maybe right now you're in that moment where the weight has gotten so heavy and the burdens have become so many. And the difficulties have become so great that you're thinking you don't want to keep persevering. You don't want to keep enduring. The power of God will keep you. And the truth of God will guide you. The spirit of God will encourage you. The people of God will go with you. And we are to pursue this perseverance. We are to pursue this endurance. And one of the things the Lord has taught me over the years is the necessity of such endurance. That through the ups and the downs, the valleys and the mountains, the peaks and the valleys, we are to continue to endure. We don't have the option of turning back. We don't have the option of turning to the right or the left. Not at least if we want to be faithful. And that says to us, we've got to keep on keeping on. And as we seek to advance the kingdom of God, that's the message to the church. It's a lot easier to start something in the church, to start a mission, to start an initiative, to begin to move forward, to do great projects and different things. But it's a whole lot more difficult to sustain it, I'll tell you that. It's a lot easier to get a little bit of momentum for the moment. It's a lot more difficult to sustain it. And I believe that one of the roles that God has given me in this church as the leader of this church, in this role as the shepherd of the under-shepherd in this church, is to tell you that not only are we not quitting, not only are we not backing off, we are picking up speed. We are moving forward. The work of God goes on. We are blessed to be a part of it. Can you understand the great privilege that you have to be a part of the family of God? That God would call you his child. And that we are here together as the family of God. And we've stepped into this river of the will of God. But I want you to know that river is fast and it's flowing swiftly. And that river will not stop for any person. And when we step into it, We flow with it, 
and we endure and we persevere. And then he says, pursue gentleness. Some have mistranslated this idea as being weakness. There's a lot of people that are weak in churches. They don't really want to get too close to the truth because truth is going to raise up conflict at times. They don't want to speak truth into the mix of error because they're concerned about what the consequences are going to be of that. But this does not mean weakness. This means meekness. It, it means strength under control. It, it's the, the attitude of Jesus. It's the heart of Jesus in his earthly ministry. And it was a root word that was used to refer to a horse, a, a mighty and powerful animal that was broken under a, a bit in the command of a rider. And a gentle person does not fight in their own way. They fight the good fight of the faith in God's way. I've mentioned a name to you before, J. Gresham Machen, who was a defender of orthodoxy in the 20th century. He was the, at Princeton Theological Seminary when Princeton Theological Seminary believed the Bible. And he pointed out the fact that not only was Paul a great fighter, but also the great men that God has used down the centuries have been as well. And here's what he says about the Apostle Paul in his last address to the Princeton Theological Seminary. Machen says the Apostle Paul was a, was a great fighter. His fighting was partly against external enemies, against hardships of all kinds. Five times he was scourged by the Jews, three times by the Romans. He suffered shipwreck four times. He was in the perils of waters and perils of robbers and perils by his own countrymen, perils by the heathen and perils in the city, perils in wickedness and in the perils of the sea and perils among false brethren. And finally, he came to the logical end of such a life by the headsman's axe. It was hardly a peaceful life, but was rather a life of wild adventure. And then Machen says this of the Apostle Paul. But these physical hardships were not the chief battle in which Paul was engaged. Far more trying was the battle that he fought against the enemies in his own camp. Everywhere his rear was threatened. Do you know the history of the church consists of the world, the flesh, and the devil especially introducing destruction? And division into the body of Christ. And then that uh, destruction and division being clarified and confronted with the truth. Church, we're not only called to flee from certain things, we are called to run toward certain things. And then third, to fight the good fight requires holding on to eternal life. I want you to look here in the scripture again, and I want you to note this phrase, Take hold of eternal life. He said, wait a minute. I thought Timothy already had eternal life. Why does Paul tell him to take hold of it? Paul's already mentioned eternal life back in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 16. He said, but I received mercy for this reason so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus, might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. So Paul says, listen, he took me. I was a wicked sinner. I was the worst of them all. I was the chief of the sinners. And God took me, Christ Jesus took me, so that he might demonstrate his extraordinary patience 
as an example to other people who would believe in him for eternal life. He said, that's what God did for me. And he spoke of it often in his letters. You remember Jesus defined eternal life? Jesus said, now this is eternal life. Now listen to me, church. When Jesus says this is, and then he tells you something, you better perk up. You better listen well. And he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And in response to the grace of God, we take hold of eternal life that God has graciously imparted to us. This wording, take hold, means to fasten onto, to grasp in order to make one's own, or even to grab sometimes with violence. You remember when Peter was in the boat and Jesus came walking on the water and Peter had enough faith in that moment to step out there. You know the story. You remember what happened? He took his eyes off of Jesus, and when he took his eyes off of Jesus, he sank immediately. And the Bible uses the same wording of how Jesus caught Peter as he began to sink. It's the same idea here of taking hold, that Peter had been looking toward Jesus in faith, and he took his eyes off of Jesus, and he sank under the water, and he said, save me, and Jesus took hold of him. What a beautiful picture of what God does for us when he gives us the gift of everlasting life. He gives us a present possession, but he also fills our hearts with a future hope, and eternal life is obviously everlasting, so we would speak of it in terms of its quantity, But then the emphasis here is on the quality of life as well, of what God does for us in Christ. Paul said this in Philippians 3 and verse 12. He said, not that I have already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have already been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Same idea. I've already been taken hold of. But now I'm going to take hold of what's been given to me. So Timothy already had eternal life, but he is instructed to grab it for all it's worth. So here's my message to you as the church. When God reaches down and he saves us by his grace through the blood of Jesus, and we put our faith and trust in Jesus, turning from our sins and turning to the Savior, God has now taken hold of us. But the message to us is take hold of what God has given you. Now's not the time to live in religious mediocrity. Now is not the time to live with spiritual lukewarmness. Now is not the time to stop enduring and stop persevering. Now is not the time to get weak. Now is time to take hold of what God has done for us. That's the calling of the Christian life. And friends, there's people sitting in churches all over today, and they're thinking about their Christian life as though it's in neutral, that they can just add it on to everything else that they're doing. That's not what it means to be a disciple. You have been called to eternal life. And it's a work of God from the beginning to the end that God, being rich in mercy and his kindness, would grant us the gift of eternal life. And there's that general call to salvation that's issued to everyone through creation and conscience and then the gospel. 
And the Bible says very plainly that God commands all men everywhere to repent. The beauty of the gospel is that whosoever will may come. But in that specific call to salvation and eternal life, it's a call to your soul, your life, your relationship with God. It's one thing to sit in a building like this and hear the general proclamation of the gospel and say that everybody should repent and believe. It's an altogether different thing when you start to feel the stirring of the Spirit of God in your life. And you begin to understand your sin and the holiness of God. And you begin to understand that God was willing to send his one and only son into this world as God in the flesh. That he would be tempted at every point as we are, yet be without sin. That the one who was tempted at every point as we are, yet was without sin, was willing to go all the way to the cross for us. That he would endure the very wrath of God so that we could be forgiven. That he would take the penalty for, for our sins. That he would die as the substitute for what we deserve. And in doing so, secure eternal life for us. And that's what we're called to, to believe in this Savior and trust in him as Lord. Romans eight twenty nine says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, there's another part here that I want to give you before I conclude. He says, you have made a good confession. The word confession means to speak the same thing. I think about the conversation that John tells us about between Pilate and Jesus. You remember Jesus came to bear witness to the truth and he confessed his own identity before Pilate. Pilate asked him the question, in John chapter 18, are you the king of the Jews? You remember what Jesus said? My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. He's speaking of a physical attack on them coming to claim him. That I might be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. And then Pilate says to Jesus, so you are a king. And Jesus answers, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. You know what it means to bear witness to the truth? To make a good confession. That's what it means. Early Christians insisted on believers making a similar confession before others. I think the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts made such a confession. I think the writer of Hebrews had something similar in mind. And we learn here of Timothy's confession. So a good confession is to proclaim Jesus as Savior and follow Jesus as Lord. And Paul spoke about that on several occasions. So I think about a confession as being similar to a testimony. A testimony is a firsthand authentication of a fact. So in a court of law, offering eyewitness testimony is doing that very thing. So your testimony or your confession is both the words of what God has done for you. Now listen to me, stay with me here. It's both the words of what God has done for you, but it's also the testimony of your life. Because you can talk a good religious game and you can speak of spiritual language. You can throw some Bible verses in there and you can convince yourself that you're living in the pathway of righteousness and you can be going the absolute opposite way of the pathway of righteousness. 
Understand, it's not just what you say, it's what you do. So the words that you say need to match up with what you do. And you are to make a good confession with your words of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. You're to make a good confession with your life as you follow Jesus. And I promise you this, people are watching your testimony. They're watching, especially if they know you're a Christian. And they want to know if it's genuine or if you're a hypocrite. That's what they want to know. And to fight the good fight requires holding on to eternal life. So I end where I began. Fight the good fight. Gordon Dalby makes a great point in his commentary about this. That when Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the helper, he uses a word, paraclete, that was an ancient warrior's term. Greek soldiers went into battle in pairs so that when the enemy attacked, they could draw together, back to back, covering each other's blind side. One's battle partner was referred to as the paraclete. Our Lord does not send us to fight the good fight alone. The Holy Spirit is our battle partner who covers our blind side and fights for our well-being. And I say to you, church, as we gather together as the people of God and then the Holy Spirit is our battle partner, whatever comes out of that gate, stay together. That's the message. Lord Jesus, we are grateful today that though we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, you died for us. We cannot save ourselves. We would not even have known we were lost if it were not for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit working through the Word. I thank you and say with my brothers and sisters in Christ that we are grateful that you have called us out of darkness and into light by your glorious grace and mercy and kindness. Lord, protect us from the world, the flesh, and the devil that would come against us to discourage us, to defeat us, to divide us, to redirect us. May our eyes, Lord Jesus, stay focused on you as the one compelling priority of all that we do. Oh God, we are imperfect people serving a perfect God. And our desire is to take hold of, to lay hold of that eternal life and to live it in a way that honors King Jesus. I pray, oh God, and I feel the weight especially of the need for us to endure and to persevere. I pray, Father, that these would not just be words or ideas, but that they would be the resolve of our hearts. And, Lord, you would strengthen us to do so. 
we surrender it all to you because, Lord, it was yours to begin with. And we give you the credit and the glory for any good that comes from it in Jesus' name. Amen.